This is Jim English, and welcome to my podcast called Who Gives a Shit Files. And I very much appreciate you listening. And I want to let you know that I've made over 80 podcasts. And once again, I thank all those who listen. Now, this one is about the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. And it's about three men who took a basic stand for human rights, basic human rights. And those three men were... John Carlos, Tommy Smith, and Peter Norman. Peter Norman was an Australian, and he is rarely mentioned with the two other men because they're considered icons of human rights and the fight against injustice. But Peter Norman was shunned by his own country, Australia, and I'm going to get into that in a little bit. Now, first of all, Basic human rights were being violated everywhere around the globe in 1968. It was astounding when I started doing research that how many people were denied human rights. And for the sake of discussion, what I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that we had a working definition for human rights. And what I did is I chose the United Nations definition that was cited in their referendum or human rights declaration of 1968. It was the same year as the Olympics and the same year the world was in a mess. And everybody was talking about it. So the UN decided to address it. The 84 countries in the UN all voted to enact this, even though half of them didn't do a thing about it. But here is the working definition. Fundamental freedoms cannot be denied based on the grounds of race, color, gender, language, or religion. These fundamental freedoms include the right to vote, equal education, opportunities for advancement, the right to read. I know it's hard for some people to believe in this day and age. There was no social media, so there was limited amount of exposure to reading material as dictated by government the right to travel, the right to move around, the right to change occupations, the right for economic advancement. So this is what the United Nations described as basic human rights. Now, what I did when I I was curious about this podcast, I was curious how many people did not have human rights. And so I started doing like a census count. And here's what I came up with. So three 0.5 billion people lived on the planet in 1968. By the way, that is over doubled uh, since since 1968 as opposed to 2021. In 1968, China had three quarters of a billion people, which was about 22% of the population. China was in the midst of a cultural revolution and Mao Zedong had his Red Army and hundreds of thousands of students armed with machetes take to the streets and eliminate all vestiges of capital, capitalism, education, and religion. And this was a horrible time. Millions of people were literally swallowed, slaughtered. As a matter of fact, the estimates are between 1.5 and 3 million unarmed civilians were murdered by the Red Army and the Red Terror, and Mao Zedong let it happen. And 
anyone who is part of the academic world, colleges, high schools, were murdered and tortured. All private industries were shut down, and the owners of those industries were once again murdered and tortured. So churches, temples of all denominations, didn't matter what. I mean, we're talking Islam or Judaism or Christianity, Hindu, didn't matter. All of them were destroyed. And students drunk with a bloodthirst flooded the streets of Shanghai and Beijing and Madras and all of the major cities in China. And what they did is they took machetes to anyone who had any resemblance to any sort of non-communistic influence. And I'll give you an example. And this is, this is stunning, is that the Red Terror and the Red Army killed and murdered people who were not dressed according to the communist uniform that existed in 1968. So under Mao Zedong, the, uh, during the Cultural Revolution, not only could you not vote, you couldn't practice religion, no economic opportunities, the state dictated what you wore. I mean, this is stunning. And if you didn't wear what they said, they murdered you. Uh, it was a very bad time. So that's 22% of the population that had absolutely no human rights at all were being slaughtered indiscriminately. In 1968, the Soviet Union consisted of 17 separate and distinct countries. Poland, Bulgaria, Hungary, Estonia, Ukraine. We got the war going in Ukraine now. I guess it never stops there. Belarus, Armenia, etc. Once again, 17 different countries and a myriad of different cultures and religions were part of the Soviet bloc, and they had about 10% of the populations. And the citizens... In the Soviet bloc, the Soviet Union had no right to vote. They could only read one newspaper, and this is very ironic to me. The name of the newspaper was called Pravda, and it means truth in Russian. And it was a government-run, government-written, periodical, daily newspaper, and it only had the communist perspective. They weren't allowed to read anything else. Um, religions were banned, and the Soviet bloc, the government, dictated everything to the, to its populace, where they slept, what industries, what opportunities to pursue, what to eat. It, the whole thing was run by a government. So there were no basic human rights there. So that's, uh, you know, another 11, 10, 11 percent of the population. In 1968, Latin America was run mostly by dictators who suspended all human rights. Uh, Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, Panama, Colombia, Cuba, Brazil, Venezuela, Uruguay, and I mean the whole Latin America, including Mexico. And what they did is they allowed people to worship, assuming it was Catholicism. That was the only thing that they were allowed to do but they weren't allowed to vote, they weren't allowed to read, and this constituted another 6% of the population. In Africa, tribal leaders and dictators totally drove how people lived. They were under dictatorial rule. 
and there was no voting, no right to travel, no economic advancement. They told everybody what was going on. And, you know, I mean, if you look at apartheid in South Africa, which was in full bloom, unfortunately, in 1968, 90% of the people were population of color. And when I say of color, that means Indian, Pakistani, and, and black. They were run by a 10% white minority. And they were, they had, the minority had all the wealth and they totally dictated to the rest of the population how they were going to live, where they were going to live. They were basically slaves. Now, also, too, another 6% of the population lived in Arab Muslim countries such as Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Syria. All these were oligarchs. They were run by clerics. And you were allowed to practice religion, assuming it was Muslim, because they persecuted Christians and Jews and Hindus. So we have a situation where about 50% of the country is, 50% of the world, there, there were no human rights. They were severely limited. No voting, no travel, no reading. I mean, this was really, really a tough situation. So between the communists and the cultural revolution and the dictators, there were no human rights to any of those people that lived in those populaces. Now, the thing is about those countries I just mentioned, that's where government had formal policies that allowed for the discrimination of populations and a forfeiting of human rights. This did not include other populations where people were discriminated against because of institutional norms or societal biases. They weren't necessarily driven by the government. And I give you a couple of examples. Like, first of all, let's take women. <clears throat> I mean, women were second-class citizens in 1968. They were, there were hardly any doctors, there were hardly any lawyers, there was no captain of industry, there was no CEOs, there were hardly any senators. And this is in the, the Western Europe. I'm not just talking about the Muslim countries where women were stepped on when they got out of line. This is in, quote unquote, the free Western world where there was discrimination against women. Also, I mean, it's no secret, I don't like to talk about race. But nonetheless, in 1968, in the United States, in Canada, in Britain, men of color were discriminated against, not formally by the government, but by societal norms and biases. So it was a tough situation. And under this context, human rights were being violated in every single country in the world, pretty much. I mean, it's either formal or informal discrimination against people because of ethnicity, religion, race, government, whatever the situation. And in 1968, the, the civil rights movement was underway in the United States. And by the way, this is the context in which the Mexico City Olympics occurred. Now, a Dr. Harry Edwards, professor of sociology at Cal Berkeley, was a human rights activist, and he started something 
called the Olympic Project for Human Rights. So that's O-P-H-R. I'll refer to that as either by the name or O-P-H-R. And many of the athletes, the African-American athletes, uh, Harry Edwards, Dr. Harry Edwards was an African-American. They joined the O-P-H-R. And some of the athletes that were part of this Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, many famous athletes of the era joined. <clears throat> and two others were part of this as well. And that was Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who we're going to talk about. And they both joined the, the Project for Human Rights. Now, I want to I want to differentiate. I'm going to take a little time to differentiate. I've heard interviews with Carlos and Smith, as well as Dr. Edwards, and they all said the same thing. This was not black power movement. This was about human rights violations across the world. It wasn't specifically about civil rights, and it wasn't specifically about the plight of the African-American in the United States. Now, it did apply because it was human rights, and their human rights were being violated in this country, but nonetheless, it was not black power. It was human rights, and I'll make that point again. So Dr. Edwards and his contingent of black athletes, and he developed quite a following, discussed boycotting the Mexico City Olympics. And they were seriously considering, this got a lot of press, let's face it. If the United States went to the Olympics with no African-American athletes, they're not going to do as well, obviously, with the black athletes involved because there were so many really good athletes in track and field and basketball and many other sports that would have gotten medals for the United States. So this got a lot of publicity. And they were seriously considering, and it looked for a long time, according to the press, and what I read in Time Magazine, is that the boycott was going to happen. That these athletes who had trained all their lives for this one moment were going to forfeit this opportunity to compete because they wanted to make a statement of about human rights. And then something happened that is fascinating and it just tickles me to death. Now the Harvard rowing team beat the University of Pennsylvania by five one hundredths of a second. So we're talking a blink. And this five one hundredths of a second changed history forever. And let me tell you why. So the Harvard rowing team, instead of heading back to Cambridge, the all white crew went to visit Dr. Edwards about his human rights protest. How could they help? What could they do? And the clean cut lily white rowers dressed in suits and ties showed up to a meeting to discuss how they could help the plight for human rights and how they could work with the OPHR to change things. Now, this must have been pretty interesting because the black athletes who were in the OPHR tended to dress like Black Panthers. They had the afros, they had the berets, they were decked out in black clothes. 
where the white rowers were dressed once again in suits and ties. So Paul Hoffman and his crewmates talked to Harry Edwards, Dr. Harry Edwards, and the contingency of African-American athletes that were at the meeting and told them they could make a statement globally at the Olympics and bring visibility to human rights rather than boycotting the Olympics. And everyone decided that the crew was right, that they could bring more visibility and make a more compelling statement by going to the Olympics. Now, the linchpin, the thing that convinced Harry Edwards and the OPHR to, to not boycott the Olympics was the commitment that the Harvard crew made, and this is what they made. They said they would write a letter to every American athlete who qualified to go to Mexico City in the Olympics. And they also started writing to non-American athletes as well. So every athlete got a letter talking about OPHR and what they're trying to do and how they're trying to have a positive effect on human rights that were violated everywhere, including Mexico. And I'm going to talk about that. I mean, think about what a courageous, a courageous act this was by a all-white, privileged Harvard crew team that tried to help. I mean, this was amazing. And the fact that they did it, that they committed to this, is the reason that Harry, Harry Edwards and the OPHR participated in the Olympics. Now I'm going to deviate a little bit and talk about the third man on the podium. So there was the black, what is called the black protest, but it was also a protest for human rights. There was Carlos and Smith and another man by the name of uh, Peter Norman, who has become a footnote in history. Now he was an Australian who qualified for the 200 meter race. He grew up in Australia as a child of a family who worked and dedicated themselves to the Salvation Army. So throughout Peter Norman's childhood, he, he and his family supplied the underprivileged with food, clothing, and shelter. He witnessed firsthand the poverty and discrimination the native Aborigines were subjected to. As a child, he was deeply touched by the difficulties of the underprivileged. Now, it was what was also interesting during this time is Australia had laws that limited the amount of people coming from different countries that were trying to immigrate. So the Western Europe and Ireland and England and France and Spain come on down to Australia. We love you. There was no limitation. But if you were from Africa or you were from India or you were from Asia or China and you wanted to immigrate into Australia, there were limitations and they were very strict about who they allowed in or who they didn't. They clearly discriminated on immigration based on nationality and ethnicity. And um, so Peter Norman was dead set against this and had been exposed to human rights issues as a young child and as a young adult. So he wanted to know what he could do to help because he got a letter from Paul Hoffman and the Harvard crew and his time would come. So 
in the 200 meter sprint that occurred, this is the finals on October 16th, 1968, John Carlos and Tommy Smith were the overwhelming absolute favorites. These two had broken the record for the 200 meters. They kept beating each other and breaking their records. They both went to San Jose State uh, University and they had the best times in the world. So everybody knew or thought that they were gonna be one, two. And the question about the race was, there was actually two questions. One was, would Smith be Carlos or vice versa? And there was an, also an undercurrent, a discussion that this would be the race where the human rights demonstration would occur, that the OPHR would make a statement in front of the world. And was this the race was the other question. So the answer was yes, Smith beat Carlos, but there's a caveat here that's kind of interesting. And they did make a statement after the 200 meter race, the sprint. So the gun goes off for the 200 meters. There's eight runners from seven different countries. John Carlos, who uh, specializes in 100, he bursts out of the blocks and is leading by a significant margin. Everybody is behind him. But at the 75 meter mark, Tommy Smith turns on afterburners and accelerates past, past Carlos. And by the way, this race is on YouTube and it's really an astounding thing to see. His explosiveness in the 200 meter sprint was like Usain Bolt five, Olympics later, it was truly a remarkable thing to see. So it appears, you know, at the, oh, at about the 150 meter mark, about three quarters of the race that Smith and Carlos are gonna be one, two. And then something happened that nobody expected. Out of nor nowhere, Peter Norman catches and passes John Carlos with five meters left to win the silver medal for Australia. And a silver medal was a monumental task. This was a huge upset considering how much of an underdog the Aussies were, anybody was. So the fact that anybody in the world beat one of these two men was just incredible. The sprinting world was stunned at the upset. And I have to tell you, Australia celebrated for a very short time, the silver medal from Brisbane to Perth, all over the country, they were celebrating, but the celebration didn't last long. And I'm gonna get into that. Now, Tommy Smith beat his own record with a time of 19.83. And by the way, that's a record that stood for 11 years, which is a long time for a track and field record. And Peter Norman, once again, got the silver medal and his, his time was 20.06 which is the fastest time ever recorded by an Aussie to this day. He is the fastest man in Australia history. And John Carlos ran a 20.1 for the bronze medal. And what happened then is after the race, that's when 
the fireworks started. I mean, the upset was something to note, but the fireworks started right during the ceremony for the for awarding the medal. Now, Tommy Smith and John Carlos and the OPHR decided this was the right moment to make a statement and demonstrate their concern about the lack of human rights around the world. And once again, I'm going to make this point. This wasn't about black power. This wasn't about United States treating their blacks and uh, African-Americans in a poor way. This was different. This was way more broad in scope. This included human rights around the world. So Carlos and Smith told Peter Norman of their plans. And because of Peter Norman's background, he was all in. And, you know, Peter Norman's going to be on the on the on the podium getting his silver medal. And Carlos and Smith wanted him aware. But Norman had no problem with it. And that's what he wanted to do. And that's what he did. So Norman thought, okay, what can I do to support this? So what he did is he went out and went to the Harvard crew team and borrowed an OPHR, once again, Olympic Project for Human Rights badge and pinned it on his sweatsuit. As Smith and Carlos approached the podium with the world watching, they were shoeless and clad totally in black. The two Yanks were both to bring a set of black gloves to the podium, but Carlos forgot his. So Norman suggested that they wear one glove apiece. And that's why if you look at the picture, and once again, this is one of the most iconic pictures in the history of sports, even in the history of the world, is that Carlos is got a right-handed glove and Smith has got a left-handed glove and because they only brought one pair of gloves between the two of them. So the three spinners took the stand and when the Star Spangled Banner was played, Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their black glove high into the air protesting human rights around the globe and this became once again and probably the most iconic moment in olympic history and i kind of did some research on this and i can't find anybody else or any other moment that was compelling and as far-reaching and as political as this one moment in time and what happened is this was dubbed by the press erroneously as a black power salute you can still google this up and go black power salute and come up with tommy smith and john carlos but that was not their intent and that's not why they did it so what happened is the gesture was really rebuked and hated by the press. There was a swift and brutal repercussions. And let's let's before we go into the to the repercussions, let me talk about the courage of these two men. So in 1968, Martin Luther King 
a man of nonviolence, a man of guts, a man of vision, was murdered for his stand on human rights. And Tommy Smith and John Carlos clearly risked everything, their careers, their life, to make this one gesture. And the press jumped all over it. And the pictures of this went all around the world and was in every newspaper that was allowed to have it because there was 50% of the world did not have access to what they wanted to read. And it was all over the press. Lifetime, Sports Illustrated, the LA Times, the London Times, the New York Times had cover stories. And it was all over the world this was happening. Now, I remember where I was when seeing them raise their fists, the two Americans. And you know what happens during people's lifetimes is they remember cataclysmic events and where they were. For example, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated or Robert Kennedy, or when I heard that Martin Luther King, I remember where I was when these things happened. I remember where I was when Kirk Gibson hit a home run to win the World Series, I believe, in 1988 for the Dodgers. I remember exactly where I was, and I remember exactly where I was when I saw this thing happen with Carlos and Smith. And what happened that subsequently was pretty swift and brutal is, first of all, the International Olympic Committee kicked them out of the Olympic Village. And they were kicked off also the American Olympic team. They were ostracized by the sporting establishment. In the United States, the, the, the sprinters were lambasted everywhere they went and subjected once again to death threats. They got lots of death threats. A typical, there were criticisms all over the press in the United States. And, I could read dozens of them, but I'm going to read a couple because I think they tell the story. So Time Magazine said, instead of the Olympic motto of higher, faster, and stronger, it has now become uglier, nastier, and angrier. Now, Brett Musburger, respected journalist, and I am surprised that he said this even in 1968. And it kind of shows you the transition of what people think of black athletes back then and now. He goes, and I quote, Smith and Carlos were black-skinned stormtroopers who were ignoble and juvenile and disrespected our country. The press missed the whole point of the gesture. For, in fact, two weeks before Carlos, and, you know, what they wanted to do is they wanted to make a demonstration. And even in Mexico City, two weeks before they had the race, there was something that happened. There was a demonstration that caught everybody's eye. Mexico City's citizens students conducted a protest for human rights in Mexico. So 10,000 students gathered in the Latico section of Mexico City in a peaceful demonstration. This was October 2nd, 1968. 
so this was this was 14 days before the race the two the 200 meter run in the mexico city olympics and what happened is the mexican army opened fire on these unarmed students and there was a massacre snipers and this came out just recently snipers were used to pick off the leaders before they opened fire so they got up in high places and started picking off who they perceived as leaders of this movement i mean blood was fresh on the streets when the three sprinters made their stand on the podium for human rights now eventually now initially there was there was there was so much flack and the the uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos got so much crap for what they did, but this didn't last forever. Eventually, over the next couple of years, the two Americans were viewed as pioneers of civil rights. And by 1980, so that's 12 years later, Carlos and Smith became revered for their act of bravery. They were respected as athletes and as men. And now they're considered icons and part of the Mount Rushmore of human rights. I mean, what they did was not only courageous, it was, it was, it was life-threatening and now people are acknowledging it. And as a matter of fact, I saw a documentary just recently on the two of them and they're revered. They are revered. Now, both are still alive and in the United States, and the media has transformed from 1968 from total disdain of these two sprinters to absolute gratitude. These men embody the fight for freedom and justice. Now, Peter Norman's experience in Australia was quite a bit different. Now, keep in mind that that uh, Peter Norman he was expecting a huge party because of the fact that Australia revered their athletes and especially their Olympic champions. And I can't, I can't emphasize enough how much that it, the upset was for him to outrun John Carlos. So, Initially, it was the same thing as the two American sprinters. Um, the problem is that over the years, it didn't get any better. As a matter of fact, it got worse. So before I continue this, I got mixed emotions about talking about Australia because what I'm going to talk about is how Australia Pete treated Peter Norman, and it's reprehensible and scandalous. There is no reason for ostracizing a man who only put an OPHR badge. He didn't raise his hand. I, it's just amazing. I was telling a friend of mine, Rick Schaefer, about the story, and he says, I don't get it. Why did they hate him so much? Good question. Good question. But I want to let you know that I went to Australia and tried out for a basketball team. I got cut. I didn't make the team. But I was there for six months, and they treated me like royalty. They opened their house to me. I stayed with uh, Michael Major and a guy named Paul Arena, 
And they let me stay in their house for free. Didn't charge me a dime. I bought more than a couple of beers for them, I got to tell you. But when I went down under, they treated me like royalty. And I want to thank them for their hospitality. Now, so here's where we get into what happened with Peter Norman. So Norman had no idea what was waiting for him. Instead of a ticker tape parade, he was totally ostracized by the Australian sports world and society as well. He was rebuked and reviled in the press for supporting the black power athletes. Aussie society as a whole rejected him and his family. His childhood friends and neighbors ghosted him. They refused to talk to him. He was despised in his native land for, a, for the stand he made on the podium, which is really, really innocuous. It wasn't like he had was dressed in black and threw up his hands. It was very nondescript what he did, but he was hated in Australia for being part of that, and it ruined his life. And in spite of being the best sprinter in Australian history, the man was treated like a pariah. Norman was not picked for the 1962 Olympics in Munich in spite of running several Olympic qualifying times. Now, try to understand how much he was loathed and how long that Australia holds a grudge, because this to me is amazing. In the year 2000, the Olympics were held in Sydney, Australia. That's 32 years after the Mexico City Games. And Australia did not invite Peter Norman to any event in Sydney. He was the only living medalist who was not invited to the Olympic Games in Sydney. In fact, the government and the Australian Olympic Committee made it obvious he was not welcome at all and to stay away. Now, this is in stark contrast to what happened to Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who in 2000, in the year 2000, were exalted as icons for human rights. These men were respected. They were heroes. Uh, they, were, they were worshipped for what they did, yet in 2000, Peter Norman was still ostracized by Australia's sports and Australian society. And this really broke him. He spiraled, Peter Norman spiraled into a deep depression and he withdrew from his family, he withdrew from his friends, he withdrew from his society and health continued to fail. He got worse and worse and worse. And then on October 3rd, 2006, Peter Norman died of a heart attack. Now, on October 9th, the, the unsung hero of human rights, the third man on the podium, the historical afterthought was laid to rest. His suffering at the hands of his native land was finally over. I mean, this is just awful. This is awful. Not only an Olympic hero, 
but a hero for human rights, a man with a conscience, was ostracized once again by his country. It just it makes me ill. Now, John Carlos and Tommy Smith had so much respect for Peter Norman that they went all the way to Australia and were pallbearers at his funeral, and they eulogized their fallen comrade in the fight for human rights. Now, on October 11, 2012, the Australian House of Representatives issued a posthumous apology to Peter Norman and his family. This is six years after his death and 46 years after his race in the 200 meter sprint where he got a silver medal. This is a really sad story. And I'm really glad that that Tommy Smith and John Carlos got their due, but it is tragic what happened to Peter Norman. I hope you enjoyed your podcast and thank you for listening.